0: In terms of actual theology, it's running pretty thin this episode so
1: far. Oh, I'm not super worried about that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm sure, in a more researched and sober state, I'd have a lot of interesting things to say about the theology of good omens. I'm not super concerned. I'm I'm content just talking about the gay angel and
0: devil. Hi, I'm Darby. Hi, I'm Abby. And welcome back to Sacrilegiosity.
1: Hi, I'm Spinny today.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, She's not ill. Um, No. She's just drunk. It's fine. I am. (laughs) But... It's all good. But for this for this week's episode, we had the brilliant idea of instead of sticking to our general recording schedule, we were just going to rewatch part of season 1 of Good Omens and record immediately after the fact because this is one that we both have already watched a couple times. And honestly, does not merit the rigorous research that we have put into other episodes. So we're just gonna we're just gonna clown on it and um, have fun because that's what the series is there for—to clown yeah. on it a little bit and have fun with it. But also to feel like the most insane person in the universe the whole time you're watching it. Absolutely. If you're me, anyway. I mean, how do you feel watching this for the what what viewing is this for you? What number?
1: Um, well, I first watched it with you while drunk. Yes. And we binged like half of it and then we binged like the other half another time. And I remember there being some screaming happening or tears. I don't really cry. If you don't know me, I don't cry a whole lot. But basically the spiritual equivalent of tears shed. (laughs) And I remember feeling a little insane. And then I watched it on my own. I don't know how long ago, within the last year. Again, felt insane watching it. And right now, where we watch like clips. Mm-hmm. And in this case, I am quite drunk <laughs> and having a great time.
0: <laughs> so yeah, this is going to be interesting for editing after the fact, I'm sure. <laughs> the gist of it is we are just going to scream about Good Omens. Yeah. To give you some background, if you have never... um Red slash watch good omens it started off as a novel by uh neil gaiman and terry pratchett about an angel and a demon who uh collaborate from across the aisle of heaven and hell and they have to figure out a way to postpone the apocalypse basically I, I've i read the novel. I liked it a lot. I read it before the series was ever even a thing oh. and um, forgot about it for a while. And then what we just watched was the Amazon Prime series produced in 2019. And they've just recently announced filming had started on uh, season two of Good Omens. So season one is based all on, you know, what's in the original novel. Season two is going to be something else entirely. So Mm -hmm. we don't know for sure how the story is going to continue. Obviously Terry Pratchett is no longer able to contribute to the series, but Neil Gaiman is still on board as a writer for the series. So one of the original creators is attached still. And uh, starring roles are played by um, Michael Sheen and David Tennant. There's a handful of other BBC regulars starring in the series, Mm -hmm. but mainly the show's about them. They carry the whole thing and- whenever they're not on screen i kind of check out to be honest i i'm there for them
1: in the show which i've listened to part of the audiobook like since having watched the show i kind of started the audiobook but then never finished it but um i have a deep love for david Tennant, so i'll watch things he's in it's residual hoofian stuff (laughs) like i was like if there was a fandom I was deep into, in high school, it was Doctor Who. Also a little bit Sherlock for a time. Doctor Who and I love David Tennant so yeah he plays the devil not the devil but he plays the demon
0: (laughs) the devil the devil is a character played by Benedict Cumberbatch in this series incidentally but he's not the main it's David Tennant as Crowley the demon and um, Michael Sheen as Aziraphale the angel
1: and it's about an angel and a demon who are in love and that's basically what this show is
0: (laughs) the the main reason why watching Good Omens with me is a torturous experience <laughs> is, um... No. <laughs> why, it, why it could probably be a torturous experience if you're not already used to me is it hits almost every beat of being a masterclass in queer baity television. And mm-hmm. that's like the number one way to make me become an insane person. Because when you watch Good Omens, when you get briefly very, very into the Good Omens series, because it gives you brain worms and you cannot stop thinking about those two. And then you wind up reading a lot of uh, Tumblr metas from people who have overanalyzed every moment of interaction these two have. When you go back and rewatch it with all that knowledge crammed in your brain, um, it feels like you have your tinfoil hat on and the voices like subliminally broadcasting messages are speaking only to you, but they never confirm nor deny the messages that you are picking up in the actual text, so then you just sit there knowing what you know, but not knowing for sure if you should know it, and then you feel like <laughs> you feel like you're a conspiracy theorist, just like trying to get by that's that's how this show makes See, me feel
1: i I don't know if this will be comforting to you or not. I don't know. I don't feel like you need a tinfoil hat to see that they're in love. I feel like you just need to have a basic understanding of metaphor.
0: <laughs> like... But that's the thing. It seems like a lot of people don't have a basic understanding of metaphor. I'm the only one in the universe. I'm alone out here. Well, I'm not alone. It's me and every other gay person with some degree of religious baggage that knows, you know, Fair. or even if you don't have religious baggage, every other gay person who is trained on how to watch television with your imagination carrying.
1: I, you know, the thing is, I think we need to give Good Omens a chance to not be queer bait in season two because Neil Gaiman has insinuated, he's implied, that something happens. And we know that the two main actors, Michael Sheen and David Tennant, are so on board with them being in love. that's the classic
0: move so, is the thing. I know. I know. Like, they always pull birthday. this with us. And like, I just, I don't know. On, on a scale of, like, this is not queer bait we're confirming it and we're just, like, teasing it out of you to Supernatural's 15 years of commitment to the bit <laughs> or the John Locke conspiracy. <laughs> on a scale of one to that, it's in the upper range to me. I just, I don't trust it. I don't.
1: We'll see. I am perhaps, I don't know if I have my hopes too high. I think the thing is that Neil Gaiman... You know, like you said, has been a little cagey about it. But also his main thing has been like we did not write it as a canonical love story in the book. And since Terry Pratchett has passed since the book was written and the TV show was produced, he wanted to stay as like authentic to the series since he couldn't consult with his friend about it. So, like to me, that's a big reason why it's not. That seems to be a big reason why it's not canon. Is just because he was like, I'm following the script that we had already determined to stay true to it. He's like on board with people shipping it. He's not like opposed to it in the way that other showrunners have denied the plausibility.
0: I, I just don't know. I, they When I was reading the book, they did not feel this gay.
1: Yeah, they did. They were written and played very gay in the TV show. Like, there's this one line. Um, okay, so there's this really insane episode. It's episode
0: three. <laughs> episode three. It just like, when you start the series, you're like, oh, okay, interesting. We're really leaning into this odd couple bit. And then you get to episode three and they don't play the opening credits until half an hour into the episode because the whole first half hour is a cold open that just details the whole history their of their relationship on Earth relationship. for the past 6,000 years. Ugh.
1: And yeah, so they go through the entire, so Earth is a young Earth in this universe. (laughs) Um,
0: Oh yeah, if we can bring in any like actual sort of theology or like lit analysis, um, we'll try, we'll try our best.
1: (laughs) They go by the guy whose name I don't remember, which I do think is a historically accurate guy who counted back the years in the bible and determined like down to the month and hour the day that the earth was created and in the book um they're like god who's a woman so you know fun. i have good omens on
0: my shelf i'm gonna look this up
1: Ooh, basically they determined down to like the hour this dude in history and then god's like that was also wrong he was off by like I don't know, 45 minutes or something, um, which is very funny. I will wait to hear the actual days and times in the name of the historical figure. And then I will talk about the absolutely insane gay quote they say in this 30-minute cold open about their relationship.
0: Really, is just... I like the other thing that makes watching this show with me torture is that I keep pausing every five minutes to just (laughs) swear angrily and Google things to confirm the metas that I'd read. Here's here's the line from the actual from the actual book. Archbishop James Usher, fifteen eighty to sixteen fifty six, published *Anales Veritatis et Novi Testamenti* in sixteen fifty four, which suggested that the heaven and earth were created in four thousand and four B.C. One of his aides took the calculation further and was able to announce triumphantly that the earth was created on Sunday, the twenty first of October, four thousand and four B.C. at exactly nine a.m. because God likes to get work done early in the morning while he was feeling fresh. This too was incorrect by almost a quarter of an hour. Uh The whole business with the fossilized dinosaur skeletons was a joke the paleontologists haven't seen yet. So in the theology of good omens, it is confirmed that dinosaur bones were put there as a fun little gag to uh, throw us off.
1: Fun. The fundamentalists were correct. Also, it's God a man in the Good yeah. Omens book? That's disappointing.
0: I think the whole thing with the God voice in the series was they just kind of wanted to attach a famousy person to it and take a different spin. So Francis McDormand plays the voice of God and they switch the pronouns, but that's all they really change.
1: Okay, slightly disappointing that God is a man in good omens, but whatever. That's not really that important to our conversation anyway. Oh, so here's the insane quote that happens while they're in Rome shortly after the crucifixion of Jesus. Shortly being like, I think, 100 or 200 years. I don't really know. It
0: was 500-something AD. Yeah,
1: they're in the Roman Empire, and Crowley's wearing these stupid little glasses. He
0: always has (laughs) stupid little glasses because Crowley's little demon snake eyes... He's like shy about them and doesn't want humans noticing right away. So
1: You could find some Crowley glasses to add to your collection. It'd be so fun. I need more
0: more stupid little round sunglasses. I collect exclusively round sunglasses and I have four pairs now, which is too many for one single person to own. But maybe I'll have to get a fifth. I don't know. For Crowley. He has a couple of
1: fun pairs you could choose from. Anyway. A plot point is that Aziraphale likes to eat food and he likes human food. And that's one of his indulgences in the human world because he doesn't have to eat, but he enjoys eating. And Crowley doesn't eat a whole lot because he doesn't have to. And it doesn't matter much to him. And Aziraphale is like, oh, I was going to go grab a bite to eat from some Roman guy's name. I hear they have spectacular oysters. And Crowley goes, I've never had an oyster. And Aziraphale says, oh, may I tempt you? And he says, mm, that's more your business, isn't it? Oysters.
0: Yeah. I didn't, oysters. I didn't put that together until this viewing but um if you audience member have ever read or watched the documentary the celluloid closet and if you have a memory like a trap when it comes to uh when it comes to homosexuality in media like me
1: <laughs> you would
0: know that there was a scene cut from Ben-Hur where um, they, they use uh, oysters and snails as a stand-in metaphor for, um, do you tend to prefer men or women? And the answer is, I enjoy both oysters and snails. See like Ugh. it's like it's little shit like that that really makes me an insane person because that's not something that you would know right off the top of your head unless you are insane <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I've never seen
1: Ben Hur, and I haven't seen that documentary. But I know, or have heard in cultural context, oysters being stand-in for like oh, yeah. pussy, yeah, or like alluding to. So that, that that's like somewhat common cultural. I mean, I don't know how common it is outside of being gay, but you know. And so he's like, I don't know if I've had an oyster, and then it's like, hmm, I'm like really, really and then the fact
0: that they are in Rome talking about getting a bite to eat just like ads it just adds you know yeah this series came out in you know summer of I, i was watching it a lot in summer of 2019 i remember very distinctly what my entire life was that summer i remember exactly the music i was listening to and I remember exactly how insane I went for this series because I was also kind of simultaneously primed to be insane about Fleabag immediately after this. Yeah, it was it was a moment on Amazon Prime. Mm-hmm. Good for them for creating two series that um, gave me brain worms for the longest time. But I remember so well, like exactly how insane i went i was to the point of i will never just go and search in the tags to find a fan fiction to read because i'm not that brave and i am that picky but i was following enough people giving decent recommendations for fix i will only ever read things based on recommendation i was following enough people that that whole phase of my life is cluttered. My bookmarks are cluttered with fan fiction because I needed it. It was like in my bones. I needed it. <laughs> All those metas that I had to read. I needed it to sate whatever insane tapeworm in my brain I had gotten from watching this the information I absorbed is just too much because like whenever I like food is such a thing in this show and their relationship to food yeah. tells you so much about their relationship with like their life on earth and the pleasure they take in it because mm-hmm. the whole point of the of the series is we don't want the apocalypse to happen because we like earth and we want things to stay like they are right They've been fraternizing yeah. with each other for six thousand years, so that is no small part of the pleasure they take on Earth. But the relationship they have no. to it as characters is very different. We see Aziraphale eat. We see him. We see him love human food and indulge in human food. He will go to great lengths to get the food that he's craving. He goes to revolutionary era Paris just for some crepes because he wants them that badly. <laughs> he wants- and
1: then he almost gets guillotined and Crowley has to right, save right. him fucking idiots. <laughs>
0: and there's two different scenes of Crowley and Aziraphale dining at the Ritz together. That's one of the things they do. And um, yeah. in both of them, we really don't ever see Crowley eat, but we see him watching Aziraphale eat. And it's like, yeah. Aziraphale is like, he wants to pride himself in being very nice and like doing the right thing. But he... You know, he succumbs to temptations very easily and like the comforts of life on Earth are important to him. He's very, Mm -hmm. you know, particular and fastidious about the way that he puts himself together and kind of assembles his life. He's got his things that he likes and he's very particular about and he doesn't change up his own look too often. You see it in how he dresses himself too because he's wearing the same like silly little suit from 18 whatever in modern day. He finds what he likes yeah. and he sticks with it and he's very dedicated to that kind of comfort. Like that is a good thing to him and he doesn't want to deny that to himself. Crowley is exactly the opposite. We never see him eat. We never see him like decide to do something because it's comfortable and he has a very twisted relationship to what pleasure means like normally when we think of the way that media characterizes demons we would think that the demonic aligned character would be the one that's all about earthly pleasures, right? Like, mm-hmm. But it's the exact opposite for this series, where the angel is the one that tends to succumb to earthly pleasures all the time. And it's the demon that's constantly denying himself those things because he has this complex about it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the same thing, too, in the way they relate Cut. to each other other because in this like examination of their relationship history on earth it's like Crowley's favorite thing in the entire world is getting to do a favor for Aziraphale and Aziraphale loves asking him so it's not it's really not Crowley tempting Aziraphale to do anything again we would think that the demon would be the one like asking something of someone else because, like, that's their whole thing, is they, like, create a temptation. But that's not really Crowley's style. It's not how he operates as a demon at work. And it's definitely not how he operates with Aziraphale. He he is so acts of service. Like, <laughs> I just... <laughs>
1: it's like, please let me do this for you. It would make me so like, happy. Oh my god, the, the-,
0: oh the paintball! God. You remember the paintball scene?
1: Yes! We didn't rewatch that one, but when yes. When they go to
0: that corporate retreat at the um yeah at the former you know they're, they're trying to like investigate the birth of the Antichrist the plot is really not what we're gonna be talking about today <laughs> no
1: we're gonna be talking about a gay angel yeah. and demon <laughs> um
0: anyway they're investigating the birth of the Antichrist it's really not that important but um when they show up at this former like you know convent where he was born or whatever this like satanic convent it's weird it's not explained in full because it doesn't have to be it's just it's just where they go it's been turned into like a corporate retreat location and everyone's playing paintball and um, Aziraphale gets shot which
1: does sound like it's run by the devil
0: and Aziraphale gets shot with a paintball and it ruins his precious coat and you know Crowley's like what's the big deal you are an angel you could miracle it away like you can fix this immediately and Aziraphale's like but I would still know the stain was there and he's like making big <laughs> eyes at Crowley and Crowley's like Ugh. Fine. And so he miracles the stain away, and he's, he's like, "I was like, God, thank you." <laughs> <laughs> like it's so stupid, disgusting. It's disgusting. <laughs> I like every other. Like, every ten minutes or so, there is something that just made me say out loud, like, what the fuck? What the fuck is wrong with them? (laughs) Because it's just, (laughs) the whole thing is like this. The
1: thing, oh my god, one of the scenes that makes me most insane is when they're in the church.
0: The bombing at the (sighs) church?
1: Yeah, so, so, okay. So basically, Aziraphale is like, yeah, I'm hot stuff and I'm working against the Nazis. I know exactly what I'm doing. I'm, he's like, I got this whole thing Middle of the blitz
0: in London, he thinks he's found a double agent Then she recruited him and he's so pleased to be part of this operation.
1: He is so pleased. And so he's like, talking to the Nazis and he's like, I got your things. And then he's like, let me introduce you to a double agent ha 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 and then she's like cross double agented him and is like actually I'm a Nazi too and so now they're all pointing guns at him and they're laughing and they're like we're gonna kill you and he's like I'm in a predicament and he's very you know now it's like he's sad he was like I thought right. I had this and then suddenly you see Crowley tiptoeing through the church because it is burning his feet <laughs> because he is a demon in the <laughs> house of God and, and it is,
0: it's so <laughs> a
1: consecrated ground and he's just like ah ah this hurts but i'm saving my boyfriend and
0: <laughs> like it, he is metaphorically but also literally walking over hot coals for his sake
1: god so he arranged a demon miracle to have the church bombed even though it was in the wrong district that was getting blitzed that night. And then he was like, hey, maybe an angel miracle wink wink could happen to where the two of us would be saved. It would take
0: a real miracle to save both of us.
1: So the church gets bombed and the Nazis die and the angel and the demon are saved. And then, and then Aziraphale remembers. He's like, my books, because Aziraphale runs a bookshop and he collects rare books and it's very sweet and very cute. He's like, oh no, my book. I forgot to save them, but Crowley thought
0: of He's like, books. Like, ah, oh, here's here's your prophecy books.
1: They're like up, like the the dead Nazis. Yeah, holding he pulls them. them he pulls in. them
0: from the mangled hand beneath the rubble.
1: And he's like, it's a demon miracle of my own or whatever the fuck he says. It was like, a little miracle
0: of my own. He's trying to pass this off very casual. And he's like, lift home. He he wants to drive him everywhere. Yes. His little car, his special little car that he loves so much. The car that basically represents his whole heart on Earth he wants to drive Aziraphale everywhere in it.
1: And when they're in Soho in like what is it 1960 and Crowley is trying to arrange to steal holy water from a church. This is the next scene immediately after this whole blitzing and the miracle of Crowley thinking about Aziraphale's books when Aziraphale forgot. And so so Crowley arranges this whole thing we get introduced to like a character that'll be significant later on. Not that important. And so after he's like I'm gonna pay all these people to steal holy water from a church. Aziraphale materializes inside Crowley's car and is like, fine, I will give you the holy water. It's very significant. Aziraphale is giving Crowley holy water because Crowley wants like an off switch in case things go horribly wrong with their deal. And holy water will destroy him physically and spiritually like he'll just be gone he'll be disintegrated entirely so Aziraphale grants him that wish despite all of his objections because Aziraphale does not want this to happen he's very opposed to this but he gives it to him anyway and then Crowley offers Aziraphale a ride home and over romantic music I cannot stress how romantic this music is Aziraphale says, with a sigh, you move too fast for me, Crowley. Like, it's just- Are you fucking kidding me? (laughs)
0: Look, I'm tearing down the yellow wallpaper on the inside of my brain, like, trying to (laughs) fathom out what the point of all this was. How- how
1: else is an audience supposed to interpret that? Tell me. But it's like, Tell me how else that's supposed to be interpreted.
0: When when you are so used to reading these things and being treated as if you are insane for reading them, it's like, well, maybe I am insane. You you start to believe it. I really do think, you know, it's not that it's not intentional in these situations where they're intentionally kind of putting something out there for that audience to latch on to. That's not what the target audience is necessarily seeing. They're trying to have their cake and eat it too. where they're appealing Mm -hmm. to people who are going to see the romance in this and be like, aha, got them. But at the same time, they Mm -hmm. never confirm anything so that the audience that is not watching this with their big brain goggles on and does not care about if gay people exist on TV or not. They're like, oh, this is a funny odd couple show and they have an interesting little dynamic and it's played for laughs
1: and the thing is in what universe so like they in my mind it is they all but kiss one of the final scenes is them going on a dinner date at the ritz with music romantic music swelling behind them how like, who needs them to kiss after that? Like, that's so clear. Of course, the people who don't want to read it that way, like you were saying, Darby, are going to be like, ah, oh, this is a fun, odd couple moment. But anyone who knows is like, that's a date and they're in love. And look at it. Look look at them being an angel and demon who are on their own side. Like, it,
0: yeah, I I don't know. I, I guess when season two exists... We'll find out how far they're willing to carry this. I'm just, I'm wondering what like the eventual, because it seems like you know true, genuine queer baiting, like we got on network TV like in earlier (laughs) days of this century it may not be the norm ever again Supernatural stands out so much in my mind because it's a carryover from 15 years in the past when that would have been way more common but it's still not uncommon but Mm -hmm. the attitude is shifting especially with shows like you know Our Flag Means Death it's like they're responding to like the collective trauma of seeing something very obviously depicted in a Show and knowing that it won't be confirmed. Like, I am not yeah. going to have brain worms for 10 months about our flag means death because they just let their leads kiss.
1: We got closure, kind of.
0: Exactly. We got closure. But knowing that my brain worms would generate a content machine that could easily be exploited. It's like, do they have any incentive to not do this? Is the positive reviews that they would get for giving the people what they've always wanted? wanted enough to carry them or do they have to keep denying us something to bring us back you know i know
1: i i mean we'll really see what happens in season two because to me right now it stands in limbo as to whether it will be true queer baiting or not it's like it's almost like they left us on a cliffhanger of queer baiting and if season two they confirm it like they have a mutual conversation of we are in love, or they kiss, or they embrace in a way that can only be read as romantic. I don't know. I don't know what they need to do. But something along those lines to where it is unambiguously queer, then like, fine. Okay, it wasn't baiting. You got us. Like, it's good. But if they do anything except that, then I will... Be like, okay, Neil Gaiman is queer baiting us and I'm disappointed. He's let us down.
0: <laughs> See, like, when I try to imagine, like, what I would do if I had to watch them kiss each other or something, I I really don't know. Because, like, the whole way I would watch the show would have to shift, you know? Like, I in- yeah. instead of wearing my tinfoil hat, I could just, like... I would have to just sit there and be normal because the subtext is text. Like, I'm so used to dividing these, like, sections of my brain of, okay, I'm mostly using my imagination to fill in the details, but I'm using that text to, like, get me something to spiral about. Or, you know, I'm watching a TV show and I'm not having to, like imagine things that aren't really there in order to like engage with it i i would have to switch over and that would be a weird transition to make mid-series of a thing so
1: i really don't know i mean that's ultimately a good thing though i think like it is a switch but it is like i don't know Definitely feels better than queer baiting. Maybe a little less fun because you don't get to play detective.
0: Yeah, I don't know. My my complex about this is weird because I really <laughs> like feeling special and isolated, and like I'm I'm the only detective in tune with the actual paranormal nature of you know <laughs> the investigation I'm conducting.
1: Uh, the enneagram four <laughs> gonna
0: call you out. <laughs> Yeah, guys, if you haven't if you haven't already diagnosed me, I'm a four. I like to feel special <laughs> and unique, and I love to be miserable all the time. That's my whole thing. In all of the metas and fanfic that I read trying to feed my brainworm so it didn't mm-hmm. consume the rest of me. Um, <laughs> Um, the thing that really kind of drove this concept home for me, like, I'm really not watching for anything besides Aziraphale and Crowley, because in the, in the TV show, like less so with the book in the TV show, the other characters really don't hold my attention And it's just these two with their, like, ridiculous complexes and, like, relationship to power and to Earth versus their workplaces of heaven and hell and, like, the workplace politics of heaven and hell. The thing that really made the idea of these characters important to me was seeing how, like... Seeing how viewers and how, like, fanfic authors, especially, handled Crowley's relationship to heaven. Because, Mm. in the cosmology of this series, you know, all the demons that joined Lucifer Devil's side are fallen angels. So they started off in the same plane with everyone else and then they, you know, they fell or in Crowley's case he sauntered vaguely downwards.
1: Sauntered vaguely downward. That's so that's so good. That's such a good description. It's <laughs> like props to writing that and Crowley plays it so well. He's always Sauntered sauntering. vaguely downward. <sighs> David Tennant has a horror
0: walk. He walks like he a uses whore. And he turns it up past the usual whorishness in this series.
1: The only potential <laughs> rival to David Tennant's horror walk in Good Omens at different times is in Runaway Bride. Oh my where god. Where this was my favorite rom-com for a few years in high school. <laughs> Holy um, shit.
0: That's the one where he has the inexplicable, like, American accent, right? Is that the one?
1: They're in Scotland! Yeah! They're in Scotland and they make him be American.
0: (laughs) Justice for David Tennant! Like... I, I can only think of a handful of times when they just let him be in his own voice, and one of them was that one production of Much Ado About Nothing with yeah. um oh my
1: God Donna whose name yes, I'm forgetting yes. Catherine. Catherine, Catherine Catherine Tate something Catherine
0: Tate Catherine Tate <laughs> that one production of Much Ado About Nothing and like Broadchurch yeah and that's like all I can think of right now Justice for Tenant. But no, I agree.
1: Yeah, he has a very good horror walk when he's in like these little yellow pants, yellow plaid pants. They like zoom in on his ass. I, I remember it distinctly.
0: <laughs> Jesus Christ.
1: I was I've said I said this before earlier in this podcast. I was a Hoovian in high school, so of course I had to love Runaway Bride. Of course. I kind of stand by it. It's fun. It's really good. Anyway, <laughs> David Tenna as a horror walk, exemplified in good omens, and runaway bride.
0: <laughs> he just really leans into the saunter. We, yes. were, we were talking about something else.
1: Um What were we talking about? I do not remember. Religious
0: trauma. Yes. <laughs> Um, Religi- were we talking about religious trauma? I was, I was getting there. Oh, okay. We, I said saunter, and then we uh, went on like a two-minute tangent. The point is, I really loved seeing, like, the absolute best way to watch the show, the most engaging way to watch the show, is as a gay person with some kind of religious baggage or religious trauma. Yes. Because when you have both of these things, number one, you can pick up on every little detail of um, Crowley and Aziraphil's massively fucked up 6,000 year friendship, where they're (laughs) majorly dependent on each other for their well-being. Because who hasn't had one of those? Um, (laughs) And two, you get to see how... Crowley's relationship to what happened at the fall is continuing to affect his day-to-day. Because Mm. in the characters of Crowley and Aziraphale, you basically have the two main responses that a person has to realizing that you know you have to deconstruct some things about your experience with religion. For Aziraphale, like the way that you might choose to cope as a person who feels different, who knows that some of the like who knows that some of the feelings and like urges you know sentiments that you might have are not going to be in line with what's expected of you the way that you might cope is maybe you indulge in those things secretly maybe you uh maybe you try to keep it under wraps whether or not you choose to engage in like some of what you're curious about or wonder about you know you keep that hidden in your public persona and whenever you interface with the people who are authority figures to you who in your own mind at least have some kind of say over like your well-being in this life and the next, you know. You have like this persona that you put on with them and maybe you get kind of cagey sometimes, but like you try to appear as normal and compliant as possible. So Aziraphale does this. He winds up people pleasing, you know, whenever he has to interact with people from heaven. He like really tries to not let it get out or not let on that there's something else going on with him while he's on Earth. He's deadly afraid of repercussions of someone finding out what he's doing. Because he wants to keep his status in heaven because he's afraid to challenge that. Because even if it's not the most welcoming community that he's been a part of, it's still his community and he feels a loyalty and obligation to it. So adhering to the expectations of the system, trying to abide by its tenants, at least on the outside, that's one, that's one option you have. The other option, which kind of all the demons were forced into when they fell, when there was literally a big falling out from heaven, is you take that identity of going against the grain and you make that your whole persona. So you really lean into, like, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do and mm-hmm. we see how Crowley puts himself together like outwardly he is always like all black trying to like you know be all goth and whatever and like <laughs> it you know it suits him and he likes it but it's also very much like intentional and a facade like it wouldn't be like this if he wasn't feeling forced to be like this so mm. He takes on being a demon as like, that's the facade he puts out of, I'm always going to be bad. I'm never going to regain that relationship that I once had. But you see him missing it and you see him kind of craving that old connection because, you know, you fall into another community of people who were in the fold and then left it. But the hierarchy in Hell is... Shown to be like pretty parallel to the hierarchy in heaven. Like, it's not mm-hmm. that hell is definitively bad, it's just that there's bureaucracy in both of these places, and that both sides have a job to do and they want to prove that one is better than the other. And they're all working toward the apocalypse to get their chance to prove it because they're following in line with the plan. But Crowley, he has these like like it's it's not the main focus of the series but he has these moments of like you see him praying basically yeah and he's like he's talking to god and god isn't responding god only ever responds with like angels so, you see him kind of directing something up to heaven. And, like, I remember one of the things that he said that, like, kind of burrowed in my brain was, like, all I ever did was ask questions. Mm-hmm. So, it sets up this view of heaven and hell as places where there really isn't room for doubt. You are just expected to adhere to the social mores of whatever place you found yourself in and do your job and keep your head down and for the most part nobody's gonna bother you. But if there's something that you're invested in that you want to protect, that is going to get you in trouble not just with your own side, but with the other side. You are a kink in the system that they need to work out. And that's kind of what that's kind of what happens with Xerophale and Crowley and that's how they end up on their own side instead of being aligned with heaven or hell for better or worse. (sighs) Like, (laughs) depending on who you see yourself in, that explains a lot about the way that you chose to respond to this traumatic situation that was handed to you as a person who was raised in this system that ended up needing a lot to answer for, but the answers were not being given to you, you know? Yeah. Mm, it's so good.
1: <laughs> it was interesting hearing you lay out the descriptions like that because they're very accurate and also, I think, reflects the differences in how you and I responded to our different situations. You responded more like Crowley, and I responded more like Aziraphale. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, no, right. I, I mean, I feel like that's what I was hearing.
0: <laughs> I think that there, there are phases that you could go through, you know.
1: Yes, yeah. At least initially, because Crowley—I mean, not Crowley. Aziraphale does start to question more and ask those questions and be more defiant. But at least, like for me, it was definitely like, well, I'm like, I didn't really question. I was like, this is just the way it is, and I'm going to continue to like play the part that I'm supposed to play and I don't really want to deal with the repercussions of not playing that part until eventually that just becomes untenable so you know in these two option lenses that's been like my journey broadly (laughs) and then you become a little bit more like Crowley where you're like I just asked questions and now I'm here
0: (laughs) so so we're corrupting each other slowly
1: yeah is this yeah. what you're
0: saying? <laughs> I mean, yes. you just got your first leather jacket. So like eventually maybe you're going to go full demon with it. I don't know.
1: Maybe. Well, it's not my first leather jacket. <laughs> I had a leather jacket. I went.
0: <laughs> Sometimes there
1: are moments you look back on. Around the same time I had my pixie cut, I went through a blue leather bomber jacket face. So so I did own a blue pleather bomber jacket that I wore frequently like my sophomore junior year of high school around the time I chopped all my hair off I didn't know I was signaling anything (laughs) but I think others did
0: (laughs) I had the same pixie cut phase right before everything started coming undone I think the haircut sometimes comes before any active realization of something happening. (laughs) I remember, this
1: is so weird of my history teacher, but I remember a very distinct moment where it was sophomore year of history. I had just got a pixie cut and for some reason my history teacher decided to address it to the class. (laughs) yeah yeah right and she she was like oh like you got a haircut it looks so cute and then made it like a feminist thing it's like it's so brave of women to cut their hair and go against the like standard type or whatnot she like was like this is really brave and i was like please stop talking about me
0: (laughs) i am not like i don't know (laughs) for cutting my hair and
1: i don't know what she was trying to signal i was not picking up whatever that was i was just embarrassed but in hindsight she was i think maybe trying to be like i see you i don't know maybe i remember that distinctly because i was like what is happening here i just cut my hair like...
0: God, in front of the class was certainly a choice in front of the class god I just remembered that I made a playlist for Crowley and Aziraphale on my Spotify. Six thousand years, I follow it. Oh my God, I didn't know you. Follow- <laughs> <laughs> oh Jesus, it's like every single one of my playlists is the exact same thing. They will always have um, Phoebe Bridgers, The National, Mitsuki, and The Mountain Goats, or at least like two of those four. Oh, and and Taylor Swift, and Taylor Swift. There's like a funny amount of Taylor Swift on here. Very, very specific songs. Does it
1: have Does it have Death Cob for Cutie on it? It has that song, right? Um, the it the does, famous does, one whose does. title I'm forgetting for some I will reason. Follow
0: if, you into the. Of dark, course it does. Yes,
1: that's the song I associate with them most strongly. If heaven and hell decide that they both are satisfied
0: I will follow you <laughs> into the dark on our own side we don't know what's gonna happen but something is and I'm gonna stick by <sighs> you man bestie bestie <laughs>
1: <sighs>
0: the one that wound up being one of the strongest associations for me was <laughs> this, is, this is so embarrassing
1: is um, it? Is it call it what you want yeah, to because that was the yeah. connection <laughs> yeah I made that connection literally while we were rewatching tonight when um I think it's in the like 30 minute cold open where they're going through their relationship and as feels literally like call it whatever you want and i was like call it what you want babe call it what you want too
0: <laughs> like like there's a particular vibe with that song that i'm like ooh this is like immediately post averted apocalypse where mm. Aziraphale is feeling really, really smug and proud of himself because he's like trying to, you know, change the relationship he has to his co-workers in heaven. And he's like, you know what? I don't care anymore. I don't care. My reputation is destroyed, but I'm happier than ever. <laughs> like, <laughs> That's the energy that I really want for him going forward into season two Mm because they're rubbing off on each other like their tendencies the whole time very slowly and neither of them wants to admit it season two would have to be the resolution of that where we've influenced each other so much that we were able to you know pass ourselves off as the other one convincingly enough that maybe they'll leave us alone for a while like we know each other this well and have each other's tendencies nailed down so perfectly watching the last episode where they are playing each other where you're watching Michael Sheen play David Tennant playing Crowley as himself. It's like clothes
1: swap trope hard mode. Like it- you're like clothes swap trope squared, Ugh, literally becoming one another.
0: It's so like, I there's a lot of there's a lot of this show that I am not a fan of. And like mm-hmm. some of it is just like I think that the way that they handled um Adam and the other kids and Anathema and Newt's whole thing. I don't I don't know if it's just that they're not gay, but <laughs> but i just they felt they felt so flat to me they failed to capture my imagination all the creativity was poured into aziraphale and crowley to the detriment of everything else they weren't able to spread the love in the way that it deserved number one number two all the most interesting things they could have had to say also went to Aziraphale and Crowley and not really to the other characters that are literally like participating in the apocalypse which yeah should feel more high stakes than it does
1: no the apocalypse doesn't feel high stakes at all it's so
0: lame like
1: you just you kind of know it's not gonna happen and you're just rooting for Aziraphale and Crowley to not be destroyed in the end
0: And the way that they nerfed Anathema really makes me sad because I loved her in the book. Her character has some interesting tension to explore because like she's a legacy of like the only accurate prophet in the entire world who actually knew what was going to happen in the future. So she's Mm -hmm. like, well, my life's been laid out for me. I know what my destiny is and I have since I was very young. So do I just do what's expected of me or do I try to challenge that in some way how do i escape a prophecy that's guaranteed to be true like she's fighting her fate the whole time and i'm like why is this not compelling to me normally i go crazy for this stuff but yeah she just does not get the ingenuity in the writing that the others do
1: they don't explore that tension enough they just sort of have her go along with it
0: right it's not toward the end that we really hint at the possibility that maybe things don't have to go according to a plan. And even then it's like, let's just burn the plan before we look at it. It's like, is it actually possible, you know, to undo the prophecies of Agnes Nutter? Like that is an interesting question to ask. And maybe they're going to try and take that on a little bit, at least in season two, but I really don't know.
1: I think a theme In season one that I could see being carried out in season two what I remember from when I first watched the show and is reading a little bit about it and just what I know about Neil Gaiman it's a very humanist perspective and it's very much like people are the way forward humans are the way forward and humans are the like you know we have to like trust in the ability of people And I think part of Aziraphale and Crowley, like the intention of Aziraphale and Crowley, seems to be like they are—I don't know if "better" is the right word, but that's the one coming to mind. They are like better characters. They are better than where they come from because they are more human. Yeah, and they become more human as they spend more time on Earth. And I feel like that will be the direction season two goes, of like them from coming from heaven and from hell, becoming more accepting the parts of them that are human and becoming human in a more real way. Just because I feel like that was a big part of, like, Neil Gaiman's message, it seems, is, like, the power of humanity. Yeah. And hopefully, Anathema will have more of that exploration, like, can I break free from this, like, cosmic curse, this cosmic promise and can I just, like, be a person? Um, and that would make sense for Anathema as a character as well. Although I imagine that because Aziraphale and Crowley are the characters that everyone latched on to because they were the most explored and the most interesting, that they'll really drive season two again. Right. Um, and be the most interesting part.
0: Because, like, there really is no reason for the second season to exist other than fan service. So... Yeah. It wouldn't be like, how do we push the story forward in a genuinely interesting way? It would be, how can we get more, you know, people continuing to watch?
1: And that's why I kind of think that they might not queerbait their fans because it is going to be fan service, basically. Like, that makes me, because it's all going to be fresh content, it's not based off of a pre-existing book, it's just sort of based on these characters and driven by the fans wanting more, and fans who are like Aziraphale and Crowley are in love, and that's like the driving factor behind a lot of people being very into the show. Um, it would be very classic queer baiting if they recognized all of that and then did not canonize it in some (laughs) clear way that would be definitionally the biggest queer baiting more disappointing i mean i never watched supernatural but more
0: (laughs) we have to talk about supernatural at some point don't we i
1: i mean i guess we at some point it fits into our podcast
0: theme Um, god maybe maybe like a year from now
1: (laughs) when we'll be like fine we watch like two episodes We'll talk about... super The thing... Okay, we're going to talk about supernatural tangentially for, like, two minutes. Because we are at a point in history where the funniest fucking thing just happened in <laughs>
0: regards to... <laughs> Truly, like... You know... Wait, okay, hold on. Didn't you, like, mention at some point that Misha Collins, like, lives somewhere, like, not far from your town oh yeah
1: misha collins as far as i know still lives in bellingham washington <laughs> right in the middle of like right in like in the fancy houses but in bellingham washington misha collins lives here he runs like gish which is like a worldwide scavenger hunt right, fundraiser right. thing every year and he, the way he wants one of the clues was once like find him at the bellingham farmer's market and he like lives here i know someone who I, well i knew someone years ago who like worked at a daycare that his kids attended he so and i know that he at one point frequented the black drop coffee house um and also wonderland teas (laughs) anyway i know this okay so i never watched supernatural but i was on tumblr and i was a hoofian and a sherlock fan and so So you were
0: hulock but not super
1: yes i was (laughs) hulock but not super and but you then end up on Super Hulak. So I have a weird amount of information about Supernatural for not having seen a single episode. Um Misha Collins. For those who are unaware.
0: As of as of time of recording on um, well for me, um, May first. For you, I think yeah. it's still April.
1: <laughs> it's still April for two more hours. <laughs> um we so yeah so misha collins was like the only vocal supporter of destiel of the gay ship in supernatural he i think he got married like him and his wife cross-dressed when they got married or something Holy shit. i don't know i didn't know yeah. that yeah oh <laughs> there's like these pictures i'm pretty sure that he wore a wedding dress and she wore a suit i'm not really 100 sure about that
0: damn but um
1: i know and so they're like allies maybe i don't know the extent of that maybe i I,
0: I (laughs) i think that maybe the the maybe in this is what's kept misha collins going for so long
1: yeah so basically for those unaware misha collins was at like some kind of a con recently where i haven't seen the clip i may be relaying this wrong my first understanding was that somebody asked him are you are you an extrovert introvert or bisexual and he said all three and so people took that as him coming out i also saw later that maybe he initiated the extrovert introvert bisexual he was he
0: was taking responses from the audience like how many of you are extroverted and people put their hands up
1: okay so and then he was like I'm sorry I did not mean to and then so then people were like oh Misha Collins comes out as bi and then like three-ish days later he was like I have been meaning to address this I am so sorry I did not mean to insinuate that I was part of the LGBT community, but I am a strong supporter. I do not want to co-opt the struggle, but I am a straight man. (laughs) And I could see, honestly, like there were people who were genuinely mad about it. I don't understand a reaction other than this is like fucking hilarious. Um, (laughs) I could see him being like briefly forgetting the word ambivert and saying bisexual, which is, I think, what happened. That's my read on the situation. He, like, said bisexual instead of ambivert, and then was like, oh, no.
0: Like, the point (laughs) is... How do you misspeak that badly when the when the entire press surrounding you for the past like 6 not even so so destiel election gate happened you know in November of 2020 the whole press surrounding you since then has been about how the character you played on TV for 15 years was gay the whole time and yeah. People are losing their minds about it. How do you misspeak that badly when you are under that level of scrutiny still?
1: God. A quick recap for those also unaware of this <laughs> Destiel. Election gate basically on the eve of the 2020 election, where everyone was stressed out of their minds. In the specifically Spanish version of Supernatural, they canonize um Destiel, which was the big gay ship where um Cass and Dean. Are in love, sort of, where Cass confesses love and then goes to super hell, and Dean has a facial expression. Um.
0: Right, 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 right. <laughs> because in in you know original version, it's it's one sided basically, but then in the yeah. Spanish version, they dub over it. And they say ti, gas.
1: Oh, that's right. That's right. Where in the original version it's one-sided, he goes to super hell. And in the Spanish version, they use the romantic they use the romantic form of love where they could have used the like friendly, familiar, like I love you too, but they used the romantic Teodoro I love you. Um in the Spanish version. And so they so in the Spanish version, Destiel is canon, in the English version it's ambiguous. Um <laughs> And then years 2 years later Misha accidentally calls himself by in a con conference <laughs> and has to take it back
0: like the the disasters following supernatural are never going to go away <sighs> oh, until never. Until the majority of the cast is dead, I feel like we're still going to be hearing about, like, weird things. Because when you film the same TV show for 15 years, you create some kind of, like, cosmic vortex of misfortune and tragedy that will follow you through the rest of your life.
1: Yeah. it's. I mean, you know, the fans have already come for Jared Padalecki over and over again. About how he's like seems to be a homophobe. I don't know. Uh, He's been in the news a few times. He's been in fan news a few times. This is this is irrelevant. (laughs) We've really
0: we've really lost the thread.
1: (laughs) We've lost the thread. I don't remember what we were talking about with Good Omens, other than it could be the ultimate queer bait since Supernatural. If they don't canonize it in season two, it would be definitionally like one of the biggest queer baits
0: it would be up there for sure
1: have how much have we talked about the very ending i think a little bit
0: a little bit the very ending like in terms of actual theology it's running pretty thin this episode so
1: far oh i'm not super worried about that (laughs) um (laughs) i'm sure in a more researched and sober state, I'd have a lot of interesting things to say about the theology of good omens. I'm not super concerned. I'm, I'm content just talking about the gay angel and devil. I was wondering if you wanted to briefly talk about the very ending of this show and the, oh, we did talk about like the ultimate clothes swap where they like swap bodies. Yes. I don't have to do this. Um, about, do you want me to read your Tumblr post oh, from 2019? God.
0: No, let me let me let me just summarize it for the audience. Um, okay. I I never sat down and formally wrote any fan fiction for this series, but I came very close a couple times, and one of the times was me trying to figure out how they landed on the body swap in the first place because how it came about was after they avert the apocalypse, one of the final prophecies of Agnes Nutter, which was, um, mm. you know, you'll be playing with fire, so choose your faces wisely. Like that was that was the whole prophecy, basically. Aziraphale saw it fall out of the book, and so he took it. And he's like, do you think that's meant for us? What do you think that means? And... <laughs> They're like, this is right after the apocalypse doesn't happen and Crowley and Aziraphale are trying to go home. And Aziraphale's like, well, I guess I'll go back to the bookshop. Crowley's like, it burned down, remember? Because it, it burns down earlier in the series. And um, so Crowley's like, you could come back to my place. And I think Aziraphale accepts the offer. Mostly because he has no other options, and like, who else is gonna put him up for the night? He has no other friends on earth. Yeah. So, um, they go home, and then the next day they've swapped bodies. And I'm like, hmm, that's very interesting. I wonder how that happened. <laughs> and I decided probably they had this moment of, God, I have needed this person for 6,000 years and I've never done anything about it yet I should probably do it now because who even knows how many more days I have on earth and you know whether whether it was like a sweet little chaste kiss or not is up to you (laughs) but um that's my that's my theory that's my little fan theory (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> they kissed and then they kissed and then swapped bodies and found the immediate consequences and also solution to their problem. <laughs> yep.
0: If I were directing the series, that's how this would go. If you if you want to um, email the show and ask me for some fic recommendations, I'd be oh so happy to send them your way. Because <laughs> I have them. They're in my bookmarks on my AO3 and I can <laughs> and I can vouch for them. They're good ones. I don't read garbage fan fiction, so um, you know,
1: quality fan fiction only in quality this. Quality
0: fan fiction only. <laughs> and it isn't anything that I wrote, so I wouldn't feel like an asshole recommending it. It's someone else. <laughs> Do you have any um any other thoughts?
1: Any closing thoughts?
0: What what's your favorite um what's your favorite look? For each of them, what's your favorite little outfit that they put on?
1: I think my favorite non-standard Aziraphale outfit is um, Shakespearean era Mm. when he's watching Hamlet. That's a good one. Um, I think that that's a very fun little outfit for him. It suits him, and he doesn't feel too out of place in it. Crowley is often very much more costumey in his clothing choices for the era. Something I found very interesting in this watch through. Um, okay, first of all, his long hair in like the second era they show him in where there's like braids. Mm -hmm. Um, Noah, the Noah hair is his best hair. (laughs) Um (laughs) But aside from that, I think that the next scene they show him in, which is the crucifixion of Jesus, he is veiling like a woman Mm -hmm. versus wearing the rest of the people around him, including Aziraphel, who are men, canonically the angel and demon are genderless. That's like even in the book, I think. But, um, but they're always you know, referred present-
0: to as he. They present as male. It's like, yeah, sure, okay.
1: Yeah. So the other like men in the scene are wearing turbans. Except for Crowley, who is wearing scarf over his head, thrown over his shoulder. <laughs> and I thought that was very fun. I don't know how intentional that costuming decision was. It might have only been to show off that he still has long hair. But I thought that that was a very fun little tidbit of being culturally transgressive. Maybe perhaps is what they were going for. I don't know what they were going for, but I thought it was a good look for him. The scarf suited him.
0: When Crowley and Aziraphale decide to co-parent the Antichrist together, Crowley (laughs) is the one in drag. So that's
1: true. That's very true. Crowley is the Mary Poppins,
0: (laughs) (laughs) the demonic Mary Poppins. My favorite Aziraphale look, he does kind of stick with his uh, Victorian era outfit for a long time. I'm a fan. I'm a fan of, um, I like early Bible era Aziraphale. He just, I don't know. He seems very cute and comfortable. It's nice. Um, And my favorite Crowley, Crowley makes a lot of choices.
1: He makes so many choices. My
0: favorite choice is 2007 era hair because, um, mainly because uh, he kind of looks like he's got the Dana Scully cut in (laughs) 2007. And when you see the first time they're dining at the Ritz together, he's like, he's got his chin propped in his hand, just staring very intently. Watching Aziraphale eat, and his other hand is like clenched in a tight fist off the side of the table—just the fist of repression.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The fist of repression.
0: (laughs) That image has stuck with me, so it's my favorite.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, many choices, many bad wigs. Um, Lots of terrible wigs. Terrible wigs. I recommend Good Omens. 10 out of 10. It's very fun. It knows what it's doing. It's like not taking itself too seriously. And you can see why we have some brain worms about it if you watch it. So I think that's a wrap for this really impromptu and very fun podcast. Um, Thank you for listening if you made it through this episode with us. Um, And... You can find us on Twitter, our podcast, at Sacrilegiosity, on Twitter. Um, I'm at am underscore Dolan.
0: And I am at Wasp Palisades. Current display name is Kim Kitsaragi Lovebot, but this may change.
1: This has been changing constantly lately. It's very confusing. Sorry. (laughs)
0: It's not gonna be my name until we are out of school for the year cause I don't need my children finding me just yet.
1: That's very fair. Um, <laughs> you can email us at
0: sacrileg
1: at sacriitypo at gmail dot com please email us your questions, comments, suggestions fan mail hate mail we will read it because there's almost nothing else going on in that inbox and we would love to hear from you and and links in the description to the music and we don't have sources for this one so there won't be any links to sources this is just us talking out our ass (laughs) Um. (laughs) is that everything
0: i think that's everything
1: awesome (laughs) okay i'm gonna stop it now